0: You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, founder and principal attorney at Sapphire Legal, Teresa McQueen.
1: Welcome to Workplace Perspective, I'm Teresa McQueen. In late April, the California Supreme Court published its decision on an important case known as Dynamex Systems v. L.A. Superior Court. The Dynamex ruling, with its new ABC test for determining when an independent contractor is truly independent, has a lot of businesses and independent contractors across the state scrambling. Given the significance of this case and its impact on both employers, employees, and independent contractors, I thought this would be a good opportunity to walk through some of its more significant aspects. And for those of you who might be struggling with how to comply with classifications post Dynamex, I thought it'd be a good chance to talk briefly about some initial considerations to keep in mind whether you're a business or an independent contractor. We'll end the episode as always with an etiquette segment, and today I'll be giving you a few dining etiquette tips. So, stay with us. We'll be right back. Dynamex was published on the last day of April. It's the California Supreme Court's ruling that redefines the test employers must use in determining whether or not an individual qualifies as an independent contractor or an employee. It was interesting, I didn't see the ruling when it came out on the 30th of April, but by May 1st, I had a ton of emails in my inbox from clients and colleagues in various stages of panic and elation. The reason, of course, being that the court's ruling significantly impacts not only employer, but employees, and those currently working as independent contractors. The question answered in the Dynamex case was whether Dynamex, a nationwide package and document delivery company, had misclassified its delivery drivers as independent contractors as opposed to employees. Dynamex's drivers claimed that their misclassification as independent contractors caused Dynamex to violate provisions of the California Welfare Commission wage orders governing the transportation industry, as well as various sections of the California Labor Code, resulting in Dynamex engaging in unfair and unlawful business practices under California's Business and Professions Code, Section seventeen two hundred so let's break that down a bit. California wage orders are constitutionally authorized quasi legislative regulations that have the force of law. They impose obligations on California employers regarding minimum wages, minimum hours, as well as meal and rest periods. Dynamics drivers claimed basically that the company's reclassification of their status from employees to independent contractors violated wage and hour laws, as well as provided Dynamex an unfair advantage in the marketplace. Dynamex is an interesting case from a factual standpoint as it sort of epitomizes the classic misclassification scenario. An employer who does a wholesale reclassification designating existing employees as independent contractors, but then it makes no significant change in the way that those newly designated independent contractors actually do business for or with the company. The genesis of Dynamex goes back several years to 2004. Prior to 2004, Dynamex classified its California drivers as employees and paid them in accordance with California wage orders governing the transportation system. In 2004, the company did a wholesale conversion of all its drivers to independent contractors after deciding that making the switch would generate economic savings for the company. This is, of course, where the problem started. After making the switch, drivers continued to perform the same pickup and delivery duties as they had before, but under the new policy, essentially all of the cost of performing those duties were shifted to the newly designated independent contractors, which meant that they had to provide their own vehicles, pay for all transportation expenses, including fuel, tolls, vehicle maintenance, and vehicle liability insurance, as well as all the taxes and workers' compensation insurance. So, of course, no one of the company thought it was going to save money. In certifying the litigation for class action, the lower court found that Dynamex drivers were, in fact, not performing their duties as independent contractors in that, one, they didn't themselves employ other drivers, and two, they didn't do delivery work for other delivery businesses or for their own personal customers. Those are the basic facts. As far as the law goes, pre-Dynamex, businesses had the ability to apply various state and federal schemes to create alternate business models that were centered around overall growth projections fueled by engaging independent contractors. But reliance on this type of an alternate model really required finesse. So success, risk avoidance, was only achieved through correct interpretation and the application of this really complex and highly subjective multi-factor test. The test was commonly known as the Borello test, which was adopted by the California Supreme Court in 1989. Out of the 11 Barillo factors to be considered in making classification decisions with regard to independent contractors, the most significant factor, according to the Department of Industrial Relations, was whether the employer or the principal had control or the right to control the worker both as to the work done and the manner and means of which it was performed. Consequently, out of all 11 factors, this of course was the factor that most employers focused on when they were trying to make these independent contractor classifications. But with 11 factors, you can see that there was a lot of wiggle room, room for error, and of course, pushing of the boundaries. With Dynamax's ruling, the court tightens the guidelines for determining whether or not an independent contractor is truly independent. It does away completely with the 11 factors of Barello and pairs it down, the analysis down, to three basic questions. So now going forward, employers must answer all three questions of the ABC test in the affirmative in order to correctly classify an individual as an independent contractor. In adopting this three-part ABC test, California is actually joining two other states, Massachusetts and New Jersey, in limiting the subjectiveness of these prior classification standards by taking a more traditional view of the independent contractor. An employer can properly classify a worker as an independent contractor under the new ABC test if it can affirmatively establish a, The worker is free from the control and direction of the employer in connection with the performance of the work under contract and in fact. An employer must affirmatively establish under the B factor that the worker performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. And under the C factor, the employer has to affirmatively establish that the worker customarily engages in an independently established trade. So, If each of these factors is answered affirmatively, then the worker can be classified properly as an independent worker. As far as the court is concerned, this is really an all-or-nothing test. No one prong or one factor has more weight than the other, and if one factor is answered in the negative, as far as the court's is concerned, no further analysis is really even required. The court made clear that while it may be an ABC test, Its analysis doesn't even need to start or end in any particular order. One of the biggest criticisms of this new test is that it takes the burden of classification and places it squarely on the shoulders of the employer. Typically, pre-Dynamex, employers would start their employee independent contractor analysis with a conclusion that the worker will be an independent contractor. In this post-Dynamex world, the dynamic is flipped. Employers now must start their analysis with the premises that the worker is an employee unless it can be classified otherwise under the very limited parameters of the ABC test. From a legal perspective, Dynamex is really interesting. It's a great read. The court, very aware of how this shift in test factors was going to impact businesses and independent contractors across the state, went well out of its way to parse through prior significant significant cases in an attempt to sort of stave off the fears that it knew would be first and foremost of concern to employers and independent contractors. In fact, one of those fears was voiced by Dynamex during the appellate court proceeding. And it was that this burden shifting where the employer now has to consider the individual and employee unless it can affirmatively answer the three ABC questions that that would result in the creation of an alternate universe where all workers are now employees. Ultimately, the court didn't buy the argument. It found that if viewed in a vacuum, yes, maybe that alternate universe could be created, but it felt really strongly that prior precedents, prior court rulings, coupled with its stated examples of what most traditionally are believed to be independent contractor jobs, such as independent plumbers, electricians, architects, sole practice attorneys, and the like, prevents all workers from becoming employees. The court felt really strongly that this more traditional view of the independent contractors, workers providing only occasional services unrelated to a company's primary line of business, and who have traditionally been viewed as working in their own independent businesses makes it easier to discern who is and who is not properly classified as an independent contractor. Interestingly enough, to get a little bit of perspective, I think it's worth noting that the employee independent contractor debate has been ongoing since at least 1944. The United States Supreme Court, in a case called Board v. Hearst Publications, noted that, quote, Few problems in the law have given greater variety of application and conflict in results than the cases arising in the borderland between what is clearly an employer-employee relationship and what is clearly one of independent entrepreneurial dealing, unquote. I think Dynamex is probably as close to a bright-line rule on the independent contractor versus employee debate as California employers are likely to get. From an attorney perspective, I prefer the ABC test, I think, to the 11 factors of the Borillo test. Barillo, I, I think, made it really difficult to provide any solid direction on the independent contractor issue. Now, I understand that from an employer perspective, it's much more difficult to stomach because Borella was filled with gray areas that really did allow a more flexible analysis when it came to justifying the employer-independent contractor relationship, um, especially when it didn't exactly fit the mold. But as the court in Dynamax points out, the protections provided by wage and hour laws assures fairness in the marketplace. So typically, in their thinking, if everyone plays by the rules, or within the rules concerning wage and hour laws, you never had to worry from a business perspective about being undercut in the market. So abiding by wage and hour laws meant that all California businesses were on equal footing, at least when it came to the costs associated with having employees. But once wage and hour costs began to increase, businesses who were not ready or not able to meet that demand... I think went looking for alternate business models that would allow them to continue operating and I think Barello provided that opportunity. Unfortunately, operating outside the boundaries in a state like this that values worker protections is really, really risky business. And it just never made sense to me to, from at least from a business perspective, to sort of stumble around in the dark on a really gray area that could cost a company thousands and thousands of dollars, if not, you know, put the company in jeopardy altogether. For the most part, I have a really optimistic view when it comes to how this case is going to impact California businesses and workers in that I see a great opportunity for change. For better or worse, we are no longer a society that works within a static, traditional employer-employee relationship. The advent of technology and the gig economy has really given us a glimpse of what we can accomplish if we look outside the traditional box. I know many independent contractors or workers currently classified as independent contractors who have some really hard choices to make now. They're faced with becoming truly independent, creating a business for themselves and all that that entails, or going back to a traditional work model that fails them in every regard with this inflexible 9-to-5 in-the-office everyday mandate. Or worse yet, they're faced with staying out of the workforce altogether because it doesn't allow them the flexibility they need to be who they are in their lives, both personally and professionally. So my hope is that rather than packing up and leaving the state, the traditional response to uh, in, or the fear, basically, whenever increased employee rights come to the fore, I'm hoping that businesses will take the opportunity to ask some questions serious questions about how do we work? What does it mean to work? Is the traditional in-the-office nine-to-five model the only way to work effectively? And how do we measure success? The court, to me, seems to be encouraging businesses to examine these traditional notions of what it means to suffer to work. In a footnote, the court states, quote, if a business concludes that there are economic or non-economic advantages, other than avoiding the obligations imposed by the wage orders, to be obtained by according greater freedom of action to its workers, the business is, of course, free to adopt those conditions while still treating the workers as employees for purposes of the applicable wage order. Unquote. Who knows? It might really be easy as ABC 123. And yes, I really did go there. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I'll talk a bit about some initial considerations to keep in mind, whether you're a business or an independent contractor in a
0: post-Dynamex world. You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal.
1: Welcome back. For those of you struggling with how to comply with independent contractor classifications post-Dynamex, I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk briefly about some initial considerations to keep in mind. First, from the business perspective, you want to establish whether or not the individual meets established legal criteria, of course, for being classified as an independent contractor. This would be the new ABC test. Starting with the premise that this person is an employee, you want to walk through each of the three factors. As you apply the test, you'll also want to keep in mind the traditional job types listed by the court, plumbers, electricians, for guidance. Next, you'll want to consider whether there are any special laws or regulations or guidelines that apply specifically to your industry when it comes to the use of independent contractors. Once you properly classify the individual as an independent contractor, you'll want to make sure the language you're using to create or memorialize the relationship accurately reflects the classification. So there's some useful terms you want to keep in mind. Using terms like company or business, these are neutral terms that are best used to describe your business in terms of any independent contractor relationship. Contract or retain are words better used in an independent contractor relationship as opposed to the word hire because they suggest a contractual relationship and not an employer-employee relationship the words principal, customer, or client, are the best ways to refer to yourself or your business as the user of the services provided by an independent contractor. Let's switch gears now, and let's talk from the independent contractor perspective. If you're someone intent on offering your services on an independent contractor basis, you'll also wanna keep the tenants of the ABC test in mind. Again, factor A of the test, The worker is free from the control and direction of the employer, in connection with the performance of the work, under contract, and in fact. So when it comes to performance of the services that you want to offer, you need to be the one in control, in plan and in fact. For example, if you offer marketing services, you'll want to be sure that you're hired for your independent expertise on how to develop and carry out the client's marketing strategy or campaign. Using that example. Nothing would prevent a collaborative effort in determining the strategy or campaign parameters, but technically, this is where the collaborative effort would end, giving way to your creative expertise, contacts, and independent judgment on execution. Now, when it comes to the second or the B factor, which is the worker performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business, you'll wanna make sure that the services you offer are truly independent. If the business or client you're contracting with offers marketing services, to continue with our example, you're likely not performing work outside the usual course of that client's business. And as such, you'd be considered an employee assisting the business in performing its usual work. Now, if the client is, for example, a law firm that has no marketing department or marketing person, the services you're offering are outside the usual course of business, which is legal services. Your services would likely be considered truly independent and appropriate for an independent contractor relationship in that example. For a C factor, which requires the worker to customarily engage in an independently established trade, you wanna be able to show that you're offering your independent services to other clients. This can be evidenced in a lot of different ways, organizationally by forming an LLC, a corporation, or being a sole proprietor, having business cards, website, company phone or email, but more than the trappings of a small business, you'll want to be sure that no matter your organizational structure, you're able to show, in fact, that this is truly a business others seek to utilize. For a more detailed perspective of the Dynamex ruling, check out our Lunch and Learn series webinar, The ABCs of Dynamax, dated June 28th at www.video.sapphirelegal.com. Coming up next, we're going to switch gears and get a fresh perspective on dining etiquette. Sapphire Legal is once again honored to be speaking at the Professionals in HR Association's California HR Conference, taking place August 26th through the 29th at the Long Beach Convention Center. Join Alan Carvaro and Teresa McQueen on Sunday, August 26th, or Monday, August 27th, as they present Practical Applications, Navigating California's Latest Ban the Box Law. Alan was a guest on Workplace Perspective back in October of last year and has some great insight into this newest version of California's Ban the Box Laws. For more information, visit our website at sapphirelegal.com. Welcome back. Last week, I had the opportunity to give a dining etiquette training to a great group of professionals up in Northern California. Putting together and presenting the training really reminded me of all the different things people worry about when they're put in a position of dining out in a professional setting. So I thought it would be helpful to provide a few tips that'll give you confidence in your dining abilities no matter what the situation. Dining in a professional setting with clients, coworkers, or higher ups in the organization provides a great opportunity to distinguish yourself. There's a reason employers utilize the lunch interview. They want to see how you handle yourself in the outside world. When I was doing my Emily Post training, the instructor told us a story about Roy Kroc, the founder of McDonald's. The story goes that Roy took two job candidates out to lunch. When the soup course was served, one asked for the salt and pepper and immediately added it to their soup. Ray noticed the other tasting their soup and then asking for the salt and pepper. Guess which one got the job? The story goes that the second candidate got the job because the ability to gather the facts before acting was a distinguishing characteristic that really impressed Roy Crock. True or not, how we act during a lunch meal, especially an interview, can be really quite telling. Can you focus your attention on the interviewer or are you constantly distracted by what's going on around you? Do you treat the wait staff with respect and courtesy, or are you rude and abrupt? It's easy to look polished and contained sitting in the controlled environs of the office, but in a restaurant, with all its distractions, really presents a different challenge. Again, can you focus? How do you treat others? Are you decisive? Do you have bad table manners? All of these things matter. Job skills are one thing, but most of the time, who gets the job really comes down to who connects best and convinces the interviewer they'll be a solid representative of the company. People like doing business with people who are confident. So after this quick break, I'm gonna give you a few simple tips and suggestions that will give you that extra boost of confidence to help you impress at your next business dining experience. Sapphire Legal is proud to announce we've launched our first California Anti-Harassment Video Training Program. This engaging video program is designed to assist California HR professionals with the onboarding process to assure new employees receive important information regarding California anti-harassment, discrimination, and retaliation laws. Our new training program is specifically designed for new employee onboarding and allows your company's HR professional an integrated opportunity to present company-specific policies and procedures on preventing unlawful conduct in the workplace. To preview our video, go to www.video.sapphirelegal.com. Here are a few quick tips and suggestions that you can put into action right away to improve your next dining experience. Be on time. You always want to be on time, or early if you can manage it. Keep your guests or host updated as to your estimated time of arrival if you find yourself unavoidably late. Be a conversationalist. Be sure to introduce yourself to everyone at the table and talk with the people around you that you can talk to without having to shout. Get good at small talk so you can keep the conversation flowing if there's a lull. Another tip, wait for your host to begin eating before you start. Now, this can be a bit tricky if you find yourself in a no host situation, such as a professional group luncheon. If you find yourself at a table without a host and you notice some people have been served while others are still waiting, you might want to take the initiative to ask if anyone minds if the others start to eat without waiting for the rest of the table. Typically, no one minds, and it helps with the awkwardness of not knowing if people should wait or not. Speaking of tricky situations, here are a few suggestions for some of the more common ones. What do you do with your napkin? The moment you sit down, the napkin goes in your lap. You don't have to wait to take your cues from the host. During the meal, or after the meal, you simply fold the napkin, hiding any food or lipstick stains, and lay it next to your plate. Another tricky situation is When do you talk business? At a breakfast or lunch meal, you can typically wait until after everyone is ordered, since most people have less time at breakfast and lunch than they do at dinner. If your meeting is over dinner, you'll typically wait until after the main course has been served. Of course, none of that's written in stone, and if you're a guest, you'll always wanna take your cues from the host. The business meal really is a perfect opportunity to grow your relationships with colleagues, Coworkers, clients, everyone in your professional world. Just remember, the point of a business dining experience isn't to test your knowledge of the rules of fine dining. It's about taking the opportunity to distinguish yourself and build those all-important business relationships. Well, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank you for joining me and for supporting Workplace Perspective. If you have a workplace etiquette question or unique dining etiquette experience to share, please email us at perspective at sapphirelegal.com. We'd love to hear from you. Teresa McQueen is a business etiquette trainer certified by the Emily Post Institute. Some of the materials used in researching and preparing this episode are copyrighted by the Emily Post Institute and licensed to Sapphire Legal PC.
0: I hope you'll pass along our web address, sapphirelegal.com, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous podcasts. This has been a Sapphire Legal production. Claudia Shamba was the assistant producer, and our music was composed by Stephen Berceloni. Join us next time for another episode of Workplace Perspective, Raising the Bar at Workplaces Everywhere.